0: Hey dudes, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. I apologize that I myself sound like death. My asthma has been flaring up the past couple weeks because I've been living in a very moldy apartment, and my apartment has not actually uh, come to fix the problem. So here we are but bear with me. I hope you all had a very lovely and safe Halloween. I hope you had a lovely and safe Veterans Day. Shout out to my friend and co-worker Jackie, who's a vet. Uh, but just because the spooky season is over, that doesn't mean it doesn't get any less horrifying over here at the mortuary. In fact, today's story is particularly gruesome, and I do want to give a trigger warning for sexual assault. Today we won't be talking about murder per se so much as genocide, which is still technically murder, just on a much larger scale. Often when we think of genocide, the first example we think of is the Holocaust, a completely valid example to think of, but there's actually another equally horrific mass murder going on during World War II. Joseph Mengele was to the Holocaust, what Shiro Ishii was to unit 731, which is the subject of our story today. Unit 731 Testimony by Hal Gold is my primary source and goes into incredible detail on the history of the Pacific Theater in World War II, as well as the history behind the creation and destruction of Unit 731. I highly recommend reading that book if you're more of a history buff, but here I'll really be focusing on the experiments themselves and the science behind them. But first, I do need your help finding another missing indigenous woman. Donna Michelle Barnhill left her family's residence in Lexington, North Carolina on March 18, 1981, at approximately 8.30 p.m. She was planning to walk to a friend's home nearby. She was last seen walking on Hempstead Street. Donna contacted her friend shortly thereafter, but she never arrived at the house and she hasn't been heard from again. Donna's older sister, Anita Barnhill, died in February 1966 at the age of two. Her family said she had fallen out of a high chair and hit her head, and her death was ruled an accident. In 1999, a reporter looking into Donna's disappearance became suspicious about Anita's death and urged police to reopen the investigation. Authorities reclassified Anita's death as a homicide by child abuse. No one has been charged in connection with the child's murder, however. Police stated the investigation into Anita's death doesn't change Donna's missing persons case. They did search her former residence with ground penetrating radar in 2009, but nothing was found there. Both of Donna's parents are deceased, but three of her siblings still live in the local area. Foul play is possible in her case, and it remains unsolved. Donna was 13 years old when she went missing. She was born April 19, 1967, and would be 55 years old today. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5'7 and 125 pounds. She was wearing a dark blue jacket, an orange sweatshirt, and jeans. She's half white, half Native American, and has brown hair and brown eyes. She also has a mole or birthmark on her right arm. If you have any information on Donna's whereabouts, please contact the Lexington Police Department at 336-249-8947. After the break, we'll get into this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code miss underscore memento underscore mori with two i's. That is ms underscore m-e-m-e-n-t-o underscore m o r i i for 10 percent off of your total purchase at checkout world war ii was beyond horrible for hundreds of millions of people it's as if all of the developed countries of the world had surplus rage and hate that they had been storing up and it all came flooding out in the war years World War II, also called the Second World War, was a conflict that involved virtually every part of the world during the years 1939 to 1945. The principal belligerents, or those who initiated the war, were the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan, and the Allies, France, Great Britain, the United States, the Soviet Union, and, to a lesser extent, China. The war was in many respects a continuation, after an uneasy 20-year hiatus of the disputes left unsettled by World War II. The 40 million to 50 million deaths incurred in World War II make it the bloodiest conflict, as well as the largest war in history. By the early part of 1939, the German dictator Adolf Hitler had become determined to invade and occupy Poland. Poland, for its part, had guarantees of French and British military support should it be attacked by Germany. Hitler intended to invade Poland anyway, but first he had to neutralize the possibility that the Soviet Union would resist the invasion of its western neighbor. Secret negotiations led, on August 23rd to 24th, to the signing of the German-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact in Moscow. In a secret protocol of this pact, the Germans and Soviets agreed that Poland should be divided between them, with the western third of the country going to Germany and the eastern two-thirds being taken over by the USSR. Having achieved this cynical agreement, the other provisions of which stupefied Europe even without divulgence of the secret protocol, Hitler thought that Germany could attack Poland with no danger of Soviet or British intervention and gave orders for the invasion to start on August 26th. News of the signing on August 25th of a formal treaty of mutual assistance between Great Britain and Poland to supersede a previous though temporary agreement caused him to postpone the start of hostilities for a few days. He was still determined however to ignore the diplomatic efforts of the western powers to restrain him. Finally at 12:40 p.m. on August 31st, 1939, Hitler ordered hostilities against Poland to start at 4:45 the next morning. The invasion began as ordered. In response, Great Britain and France declared war on Germany on September 3rd at 11 a.m. and at 5 p.m. respectively. World War II had begun. Along with World War I, World War II was one of the great watersheds of 20th century geopolitical history. It resulted in the extension of the Soviet Union's power to nations of Eastern Europe enabled a communist movement to eventually achieve power in China and marked the decisive shift of power in the world away from the states of Western Europe and toward the United States and the Soviet Union. World War II had two primary theaters, the European theater and the Pacific theater. The European theater of World War II stretched across the entire continent, from the Atlantic Ocean to the Ural Mountains. It also encompassed campaigns throughout the Mediterranean Basin, including the Middle East and North Africa. In war, a uh, theaters the entire land, sea, and air area that is or may become involved directly in war operations. Out of all the areas in which World War II was fought, none were as active as long as what would come to be known as the Pacific Theater. In fact, Japan arguably started the war by attacking Manchuria in 1931, and it inarguably waged war with China by invading in 1937. The disturbances and upheavals that these invasions caused shook China to its very foundations, triggered a civil war and a famine that probably killed more people than currently live in Canada and Australia combined, and lasted until the country's Soviet liberation in 1945. Disease, known as the Silent Enemy, had taken more lives than that of bullets in all wars up until the Russo-Japanese War from February 18, 1904 to September 5, 1905. This wasn't the only battle where disease killed more than guns, but Japan was determined to learn from their mistakes. They perfected water purification methods in order to filter water while based in enemy territory. The Japanese had lost too many soldiers to water infected with bacteria that caused dysentery, typhoid, and cholera. As a result, Japanese military medicine had become the most advanced in the world by the turn of the century. And, out of all the outrages that Imperial Japan unleashed upon the Chinese people during this brutal occupation, and there were indeed some stunning crimes committed even by World War II standards, Probably none was as gratuitously hateful as the operations of Unit 731, the Japanese biological warfare unit that somehow plumbed new depths in what was already a nearly genocidal war. Despite innocent beginnings as a research and public health agency, Unit 731 eventually grew into an assembly line for weaponized diseases that, if fully deployed, could have killed everyone on earth several times over. All this progress was, of course, built on the limitless suffering of human prisoners who were held as test subjects in walking disease incubators until Unit 731 disbanded at the end of the war. In a long list of atrocities, there are a few programs in particular that stand out in the bloody history of Unit 731. Shiro Ishii became a doctor in 1920, graduating from Kyoto Imperial University. He had a reputation for being thoughtless towards colleagues, but obsequious to superiors. Ishii married the daughter of the university's president and joined the Army Medical Corps. When the 1925 Geneva Protocol banned the use of bacteriological and chemical weapons in war, he began to urge the creation of a Japanese bacteriological weapons program. Ishii responded that such weapons must be very effective, otherwise they wouldn't have been prohibited. Ishii traveled through Europe and the United States for several years with an interest in the bacteriological weapons used in World War I. Upon his return, he was appointed professor of immunology at the Tokyo Army Medical School and given the rank of major. While there, Ishii quickly made a name for himself, inventing an effective water purification filter that he allegedly demonstrated before the emperor. But the fame and riches that this invention brought weren't enough for Ishii. He continued advocating that the Japanese army develop biological weapons. In 1932, the government put him in charge of a testing and production facility in the Chinese province of Manchuria, which the Japanese had invaded the previous year. As head of what would euphemistically be named the Anti-Epidemic Water Supply and Purification Bureau, Ishii eagerly got to work. In 1932, Japanese troops moved into a city in China called Harbin. Ishii took over the Harbin facility and focused on ethical medical research, such as vaccines. But it didn't take long for Ishii to find an area he could develop into his own private lab for more sinister experiments. He and his troops descended upon a small, poor neighborhood, and it was cleared out in three days. After kicking out residents of the neighborhood, Ishii recruited them for construction labor. The wages were far below even local standards, but the new building was soon underway. This new facility was called the Zongma Fortress. It was caged in by barbed wire and high-voltage electric fencing and guarded 24 hours a day. It required a drawbridge to reach, and even the road in front of the bridge was declared off-limits to the Chinese citizens. A rumor circulated that a curious boy had been shot while attempting to explore the fortress but not even electric fences and barbed wire could keep rumors of cries of agony and torment inside the fortress from circulating. By 1936, it was known among citizens that Zongma wasn't just a prison, but a murder shop. Prisoners of Zongma wore leg shackles that were sometimes accompanied by hand shackles. One of the tests a group of them were subjected to included regularly drawing blood. Samples were taken every two to three days as victims became increasingly debilitated and weak. This satisfied Ishii's sickening childlike curiosity of how much blood could be drained from a human until death. Not all the victims of this group were killed from blood draws, but were instead injected with poison when they no longer served as lab materials. When a subject was too weak to offer physical resistance, they were axed in the head. Sometimes, sample of the brain tissue were taken for further research. It also comes as no surprise that the life expectancy for prisoners is only a month at most. But this was merely an early experiment in the infancy of the fortress, before Ishii's methods were refined. An experiment even earlier than the blood draws aimed to discover how long a human could live by only drinking water. Food was withheld from two groups of prisoners. One group was given only distilled water, and the other was given plain water. The victims were observed each day as their health continued to decline until death. The experiments at Zongma lasted for five years until a mass prison break. The disintegration of Zongma Fortress was only a minor setback. Between 1936 and 1938, another series of Chinese villages were seized by Ishi and his faction. As this new facility was being built, locals began questioning what it was. They were told it was a lumber mill, and behind closed doors, researchers joked that the people are the logs. From that point forth, the Japanese term for log, Maruta, was used to speak of prisoners whose last days were spent being torn apart or gassed by the Japanese researchers. Weda Yataro was one of the researchers working experiments in the new facility. In his journal, he recounted the results of one of these experiments. In reference to his test subject, he wrote, He was already too weak to stand. The heavy leg irons bit at his legs. When he moved, they made a dull clanking sound. In the corridor outside the cell, the guards stood with their pistols strapped on. The commander of the guards was there also. The man's screams of death had no effect on them. This was an everyday occurrence. There is nothing special. To these guards, the people in here have already lost all rights. Their names have just been exchanged for just a number written across the front of their shirts and the name Maruda. They are referred to only as Maruda number X. They are counted not as one person or two persons, but one log, two logs. We are not concerned with where they are from, how they came here. The man looked like a farmer, covered with grime. He was wasting away, and his cheekbones protruded. His eyes glared out from the dirt and the tattered cotton clothes he was wrapped in. The team leader was fully pleased with yesterday's results. We never had such a typical change in blood picture and the rate of infection, and I was eagerly looking forward to seeing what changes would be present in today's blood sample. With high hopes, I came to the number 7 cell block with the armed guards at my side. The maruta i was working on was on the verge of death it would be disastrous if he died then i wouldn't be able to get a blood sample and we would not obtain the important results of the tests we had been working on more important to me than the man's death was the blood flowing in the human guinea pig's body at the moment just before death his hand was purplish turning cold he put his arm through the opening i was elated Filled with a sense of victory and holding down my inexpressible excitement, thinking forward to how the team leader would be waiting for these results. I reached for the hypodermic. I inserted the needle into the vein. It made a dull sound. I pulled the red black blood into the hypodermic. His face became paler. Before he'd been moaning. Now he could not even moan. His throat was making a tiny rasping sound like an insect. With resentment and anger in his eyes, he stared at me without even blinking. But that did not matter. I obtained a blood sample of 10 cubic centimeters. For people in laboratory work, this is ecstasy and one's calling to his profession. Showing compassion for a person's death pains was of no value to me. One of the longest standing programs was frostbite testing. Frostbite, also known as freezing cold injury, is tissue damage that occurs due to cold exposure, occurring at temperatures below zero degrees Celsius. Homeless populations, children, and the elderly are especially vulnerable to frostbite. Prolonged duration and lower temperatures increase the risk of frostbite in the extent of the injury. Certain pre-existing conditions, including peripheral vascular disease, malnutrition, Raynaud's disease, diabetes, and tobacco use may worsen frostbite-related tissue damage. Any portion of exposed skin is prone to the damaging effects of frostbite. Patients are at a high risk for ischemic tissue injury and necrosis. Ischemia is a deficiency of blood in a tissue that's caused by constriction or obstruction of local blood vessels, which results in a reduced supply of oxygen to the tissue. Patients that survive cold tissue injury are prone to secondary infection and dehydration from loss of the skin barrier. Yoshimura Hisato, a physiologist assigned to Unit 731, took a special interest in hypothermia and frostbite. Cold weather combat was already an established issue by this time. At the time of the Manchurian incident that began Japan's occupation of parts of China in 1931, army medics treated large numbers of Japanese soldiers who suffered from frostbite. This experience made it clearer than ever that cold weather combat demanded prior knowledge of frostbite prevention and treatment. In this experiment, prisoners were taken into below freezing temperatures. They were tied up with their bare arms soaked in water water was also regularly poured over the arms and sometimes the ice that formed would be chipped away before pouring more water on it the researcher would also regularly strike the limbs with a club to check the status of the freezing when it sounded like hitting a wooden board the limb was frozen through some experiments resulted in the flesh and muscle falling from the bones Others left the bones so brittle that they were shattered by the blows from the clubs. The results were the same in both cases, gangrene and the rotting away of extremities. Gangrene can develop when the supply of blood to an area of your body is interrupted. This can occur as the result of an injury, an infection or an underlying condition that affects circulation. There are several different types of gangrene, each with a different cause. Dry gangrene is where the blood flow to an area of the body becomes blocked. Wet gangrene is caused by a combination of an injury and bacterial infection. Gas gangrene is where an infection develops deep inside the body and the bacteria responsible begin releasing gas. Internal gangrene is where the blood flow to an internal organ, usually the intestines, gallbladder, or appendix, becomes blocked. Necrotizing fasciitis is caused by a serious bacterial infection that spreads quickly through the deep layers of skin and tissue. Yoshimura then tried different methods for rapid rewarming of the frozen appendage. Sometimes he did this by dousing the limb with hot water, sometimes by holding it close to an open fire, and other times by leaving the subject untreated overnight to see how long it took for the person's own blood to thaw it out. He conducted these experiments until the end of the war. Yoshimura subsequently became famous for one discovery during these heinous experiments. Previously, it was standard treatment to rub frozen limbs until they thawed, as this was thought to be the most efficient way of restoring them. Through his cruel methods of experimentation, Yoshimura actually found that the best treatment was placing the affected parts in warm water between 37 degrees Celsius, which is normal human body temperature, and 40 degrees Celsius. In Fahrenheit, this is between 98.6 degrees and 104 degrees. Another program of Unit 731 was vivisection. This is the practice of open surgery to study the operations of living systems. One former unit member explained that results of the effects of infection can't be obtained accurately once the person dies because putrefactive bacteria has set in. Putrefactive bacteria are stronger than plague germs, so for obtaining accurate results, it's important whether the subject is alive or not. This inhumane method of research allowed doctors to induce diseases and examine their effects on organs at the first stages. Researchers used interpreters to determine emerging symptoms of the prisoners so they could remove them from the cell at what they felt to be the time for optimum results. Anesthesia was optional. According to a former unit member, as soon as the symptoms were observed, the prisoner was taken from his cell and into the dissection room. He was stripped and placed on the table, screaming, trying to fight back. He was strapped down, still screaming frightfully. One of the doctors stuffed a towel into his mouth, then with one quick slice of the scalpel, he was opened up. Even with the intestines and organs exposed, death is not immediate. It's physically the same as ordinary surgery under anesthesia. Witnesses at vivisections report that the victims usually let out a horrible scream when the initial incision was made, but then stopped shortly after that. The researchers then begin their examination by removing the organs they want to study and discarding what was left of the body. The victim dies somewhere in the process, whether from blood loss or removal of vital organs. Some subjects even had limbs amputated and reattached to the other side of the body. Ondo was an open-air testing ground about three hours away from the new facility in Pingfang. This area was used for outdoors tests of plague, cholera, and other pathogens and experimental biological warfare bombs, as well as other methods of exposing human beings to pathogenic substances in open air situations. Tests typically used anywhere from 10 to 40 people at a time. Test subjects were tied to crosses and circles of various sizes, and a lot of the experimentation in the open air field was trial and error. The range and circle sizes allowed researchers to determine ranges of effectiveness at various distances from the points where the projectiles struck or infected insects were released. When biological warfare bombs were tested, each Maruta was protected with headgear and a metal plate that hung from the neck to prevent death or injury that would skew results. Arms and legs were left exposed, allowing disease carrying insects to bite the victims. The effectiveness of various weapons was also of obvious interest to the Japanese army. To determine effectiveness, Unit 731 herded prisoners together on a firing range and blasted them from varying ranges by multiple Japanese weapons, such as the Nambu 8mm pistol, bolt-action rifles, machine guns, and grenades. Wound patterns and penetration depths were then compared on the bodies of the dead and dying inmates. Bayonets, swords, and knives were also studied in this way, though the prisoners were usually bound for these tests. Flamethrowers were also tested on both covered and exposed skin. In addition, gas chambers were set up at unit facilities and test subjects exposed to nerve gas and blister agents. Heavy objects were dropped onto bound prisoners to study crush injuries, and sometimes they would be injected with mismatched human or animal blood to study transfusions and the clotting process. Meanwhile, prolonged X-ray exposure sterilized and killed thousands of research participants, as well as inflicting horrible burns when the emitting plates were miscalibrated or held too close to the subject's nipples, genitals, or faces. And to study the effects of high G-forces on pilots and falling paratroopers, Unit 731 personnel loaded human beings into large centrifuges and spun them at higher and higher speeds until they lost consciousness and or died, which usually happened around 10 to 15 Gs, though young children showed a lower tolerance for acceleration forces. Venereal disease has been the bane of organized military since ancient Egypt, And so it stands to reason that the Japanese military would take an interest in the symptoms and treatment of syphilis. Syphilis is a sexually transmitted infection, an STI, that can cause serious health problems without treatment. Infection develops in stages, primary, secondary, latent, and tertiary. Each stage can have different signs and symptoms. You can get syphilis by direct contact with a syphilis sore during vaginal, anal, or oral sex. Syphilis can spread from a mother with syphilis to her unborn baby, but you can't get syphilis through casual contact with objects. The four stages of syphilis each has different signs and symptoms. During the primary stage of syphilis, you may notice a single sore or multiple sores. The sore is the location where the syphilis entered the body. These sores usually occur in, on, or around the penis, vagina, anus, rectum, and lips, or in the mouth. Sores are usually, but not always, firm, round, and painless. Because the sore is painless, you may not notice it. The sore usually lasts three to six weeks and heals regardless of whether you receive treatment. Even after the sore goes away, you must still receive treatment. This will stop the infection from moving to the secondary stage. During the secondary stage, you may have skin rashes and or sores in your mouth, vagina, or anus. The stage usually starts with a rash on one or more areas of your body. The rash can show up when your primary sore is healing or several weeks after the sore is healed. The rash can be on the palms of your hands and or the bottoms of your feet and look rough or reddish brown. The rash usually won't itch, and it's sometimes so faint that you won't notice it. Other symptoms may include fever, swollen lymph glands, sore throat, patchy hair loss, headaches, weight loss, muscle aches and fatigue. The symptoms from this stage will go away whether you receive treatment. Without the right treatment, your infection will move to the latent and possibly tertiary stages of syphilis. The latent stage of syphilis is a period where there are no visible signs or symptoms. Without treatment, you can continue to have syphilis in your body for years. Most people with untreated syphilis don't develop tertiary syphilis. However, when it does happen, it can affect many different organ systems. These include the heart and blood vessels and the brain and nervous system. Tertiary syphilis is very serious and would occur 10 to 30 years after the infection began. In tertiary syphilis, the disease damages the internal organs and can result in death. A healthcare provider can usually diagnose tertiary syphilis with the help of multiple tests. Without treatment, syphilis can spread to the brain and nervous system, which is neurosyphilis, the eye, ocular syphilis, or the ear, autosyphilis. This can happen during any of the stages described above. Signs and symptoms of neurosyphilis can include severe headache, muscle weakness, and or trouble with muscle movements and changes to your mental state, like trouble focusing, confusion, personality change, and or dementia symptoms, problems with memory, thinking, or decision making. Signs and symptoms of ocular syphilis can include eye pain or redness, and changes in vision or even blindness. Signs and symptoms of autosyphilis may include hearing loss, ringing, buzzing, roaring, or hissing in the ears, known as tinnitus, and dizziness or vertigo. To learn what they needed to know, doctors assigned to Unit 731 infected prisoners with the disease and withheld treatment to observe the uninterrupted course of the illness. A contemporary treatment, a primitive chemotherapy agent called salversan, was sometimes administered over a period of months to observe the side effects. To ensure effective transmission of the disease, syphilitic male prisoners were ordered to rape both male and female prisoners, who would then be monitored to observe the onset of the disease. If the first exposure failed to establish infection, more rapes would be arranged until it did. Beyond just the syphilis experiments, rape became a common feature of Unit 731's experiments. For example, female prisoners of childbearing age were sometimes forcibly impregnated so that weapon and trauma experiments could be done on them. After being infected with various diseases, exposed to chemical weapons, or suffering crush injuries, bullet wounds, and shrapnel injuries, the pregnant subjects were opened up and the effects on the fetuses studied. The idea seems to have been to translate the team's findings into civilian medicine, but if Unit 731's researchers ever published these results, the papers seem not to have survived the war years. The totality of Unit 731's research was in support of their larger mission, which by 1939 was to develop horrific weapons of mass destruction for use against the Chinese population and presumably American and Soviet forces if the time ever came. To this end, Unit 731 cycled through tens of thousands of prisoners at several facilities across Manchuria, which had been occupied by imperial forces for years. Of the innumerable diseases involved in Unit 731's research, a few were particularly prominent. Together, they represent a cross-section of Unit 731's cruelty and perversion, while at the same time providing a glance across the spectrum of scientific work if conducted. Cholera was one of these central diseases. At the multitude of facilities, the first step in researching illness and treatment was to infect prisoners. Once the disease had a human host, it would be deliberately spread among certain populations. When it was determined that the disease had infected the local population, Ishii's army and researchers moved in to examine the results and begin testing methods of treatment. One method of spreading cholera included using dogs as carriers. Japanese troops had moved into Manchuria in the 1930s and were taken aback by a mysterious outbreak of disease. They soon discovered it was a local disease that existed around the border between China and the Soviet Union. Japanese activity in building railroads close to the Soviet border in 1938 had exposed Japanese army personnel to the illness. In 1941, Japanese and Soviet researchers simultaneously discovered that the agent was a virus. Previously, it was suspected that the illness was due to Rickettsia bacteria. Ricketts is a condition that affects bone development in children. It causes bone pain, poor growth, and soft, weak bones that can lead to bone deformities. Adults can experience a similar condition, which is known as osteomalacia or soft bones. A lack of vitamin D or calcium is the most common cause of rickets. Vitamin D largely comes from exposing the skin to sunlight, but it's also found in some foods, such as oily fish and eggs. Vitamin D is essential for the formation of strong and healthy bones in children. In rare cases, children can be born with a genetic form of rickets. It can also develop if another condition affects how vitamins and minerals are absorbed by the body. But this illness wasn't rickets. After the incubation period, a high fever would develop and hemorrhaging would occur. The death rate was between 15 and 20 percent. Of course, after it was discovered that this illness wasn't rickets, Japanese General Katano returned to Manchuria to begin developing the disease into a weapon. The first step in weaponizing it was to isolate the pathogen. This was a tedious process that started with collected rats from infected areas. Ticks were removed from the rats and 200 were ground and mixed into a saline solution. According to the medical journal published about General Catano's findings, monkeys were then injected with this solution and observed for symptoms. If the disease manifested in a subject, its blood would be drawn and injected into another subject. The second subject would then be closely observed for development of symptoms. When they appeared, the subject would be dissected, its organs removed, and parts of these ground fine then a saline solution of the organ extract would be injected into another subject, which would be observed. This process was repeated continuously until the pathogen was successfully isolated. The findings outlined in the medical journal were troubling for one particular aspect. However, a medical doctor or researcher reading the manner in which the disease develops, particularly the fever characteristics, should be able to recognize the test subjects, not as monkeys, but as humans. This is specifically revealed in the account of body temperature. The monkeys recorded temperatures of up to 40.2 degrees Celsius, or 104.36 degrees Fahrenheit. Even the sickest monkey's body temperature will never reach that point. Rather, the fever reported was in range of where it would be for a very sick human. Plus the test subjects used in this research were listed simply as monkeys. Failure to identify the species of an animal in an experiment lowers the value of the paper reporting its results. Where monkeys were actually used, it was common practice to identify the type. Thus, it was an open secret that the simple and unscientific use of the term monkey by itself was code for the subjects being human. The medical community knew this. The journal knew this. The readiness with which General Katano published this transparent sham and its acceptance by Japan's medical community at large is a disgraceful testament to the lack of conflict between ethical standards of the medical world in Japan and those of Unit 731. When considering the type of illness to use in biological warfare, it was found that fast-acting and fatal diseases were key. Cholera, for example, has an incubation period of about 20 days and is therefore not ideal for a tactical weapon. Plague, on the other hand, starts killing within three days and has a long, illustrious history as a weapon of biological warfare. One of the earliest recorded uses of plague in warfare was in 1346 in Crimea, where the Genoese army was besieged inside a walled fortress by the Mongols. When plague broke out among the latter, they turned this development to their advantage by throwing the dead, diseased bodies over to the Genoese ramparts. After that, the Mongols unwittingly carried the plague through Asia and the troops from Genoa carried it back to Europe, where it became the feared Black Death. With its proven credentials as a terrible and effective instrument of war, plague was one of the first diseases focused on by the Ishi unit researchers. There were reportedly as many as six plague attacks carried out. One of these attacks occurred in October of 1940 in the port city of Ningbo. This specific attack was a joint operation between Unit 731 and one of its affiliates, Nanjing-based Unit 1644. In this operation, plague germs mixed with wheat, corn, cloth scraps, and cotton were dropped from the air. The only survivor of this attack, Chen Guifa, recalled that the day after the Japanese plane dropped the items, people started getting sick. Three days later, people were dying and they had no reason how or why. The infected were in complete agony, even going into convulsions. At first, the bodies turned red, but after death, they turned black. This area was closed off from the public and sealed off until the 60s, when it was determined that there was no further risk of infection. Inmates of these facilities were infected with several of the most lethal pathogens known to science, such as Yersinia pestis, which caused bubonic and pneumonic plague, and typhus, which the Japanese hoped would spread from person to person after being deployed and depopulate disputed areas. To breed the most lethal strains possible, doctors monitored patients for rapid onset of symptoms and quick progression. Prisoners who pulled through were shot, But those who got sickest fastest were bled to death on a mortuary table, and their blood was used to transfect other prisoners, the sickest of whom would themselves be bled to transfer the most virulent strain to yet another generation. One member of Unit 731 later recalled that very sick and unresisting prisoners would be laid out on the slab so a line could be inserted into their carotid artery. When most of the blood had been siphoned off and the heart was too weak to pump anymore, an officer in leather boots climbed onto the table and jumped onto the victim's chest with enough force to crush the rib cage. whereupon another dollop of blood would spurt into the container. When the plague bacillus had been bred to what was felt to be a sufficiently lethal caliber, the last generation of prisoners to be infected were exposed to huge numbers of fleas. The fleas were then packed in dust and sealed inside clay bomb casings. On October 4, 1940, Japanese bombers deployed these casings, each loaded with 30,000 fleas that had each sucked blood from a dying prisoner, over the Chinese village of Kuzhou. Witnesses to the raid recall a fine reddish dust settling on surfaces all over the town, followed by a rash of painful flea bites that afflicted nearly everyone. From contemporary accounts, it's known that more than 2,000 civilians died of plague following this attack, and that another 1,000 or so died in nearby Iwu after the plague was carried there by sick railway workers. Other attacks using anthrax killed approximately 6,000 or more people in the area. In August 1945, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki had both been bombed, the Soviet army had invaded Manchuria and utterly annihilated the Japanese army, and the Emperor read his infamous surrender declaration over the radio. Unit 731 was officially disbanded. Its records were mostly burned, destroying any useful information the team had managed to generate in 13 years of research. Researchers mostly slipped back into civilian life and occupied Japan as if nothing had ever happened, many of them becoming prominent members of university faculty. But how were the atrocities of Unit 731 and other biological warfare units even made possible? The researchers at these facilities weren't soldiers, and they weren't average civilians. They were scientists. It's possible that at the time there was a demand in Ishii supplied. The data traffic was organized in such a way that when a researcher completed an experiment, Ishii was personally given the results. If a new substance had been developed, the report would be brought to him in his capacity as the representative of the Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory, EPRL, and then sent to another one of his units for testing. If a professor were in Japan and a student was experimenting in China, the professor would receive the work of that student through the EPRL. If the results were incomplete, this information would be channeled back through the EPRL and the experiments would continue further. In this way, the Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory was a coordinating body that tied civilian research in Japan with military research in Japan and overseas. Japanese military aggression made the human experimentation possible the Japanese medical community was the silent inquisitor. To this day, Japan has not apologized for and China has not forgiven the countless atrocities Japanese forces visited upon China between 1931 and 1945. As the last witnesses to this history grow old and die, it's possible that the matter will never be addressed again. At least 3,000 people, not just Chinese, but also Russians, Mongolians, and Koreans, died from experiments performed by Unit 731 between 1939 and 1945. During the war, the Japanese Imperial Army used biological weapons developed and manufactured by Unit 731's laboratory in Harbin throughout China, killing or injuring an estimated 300,000 people. After General Douglas MacArthur accepted the official surrender of Japan on September 2, 1945, work began on the compilation of evidence of Japanese war crimes, eventuating in the establishment of the International Military Tribunal for the Far East (IMTFE). The Tribunal's initial charter states, quote, as one of the terms of surrender, stern justice shall be meted out to all war criminals. Adding to Imperial Japan's irreparably tarnished image were the seemingly unending accounts of Japanese atrocities committed across mainland Asia and the Pacific Islands. Rape, torture, and astonishingly creative cruelty grew to characterize the Imperial Japanese military. It could be reasonably expected that allied forces would have upheld the charter of the IMTFE, prosecuting Japanese war criminals to the fullest extent available. Unfortunately, some of the worst Japanese crimes against humanity were deliberately omitted from human rights tribunals, like the chemical and biological experimentation on Chinese and allied POWs by Imperial Army Unit 731. Although responsible for some of the most grotesque atrocities committed in either theater of the Second World War, much of Unit 731 was granted immunity from war crimes prosecution by the United States government. By granting immunity to the leaders of Unit 731, the United States set a dangerous precedent that America would overlook any violation of human rights, no matter how horrific or illegal, if it were politically or strategically expedient to do so. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next Story from the Mortuary.